With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, this is Dory Clark, and we are here as part of a Newsweek special series on creating the economy of the future. Today, our special guest is Wendy Cutler. She is the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. And we're going to be talking about trade, about innovation, and about creating an economy that will work for everyone. Wendy, it's wonderful to have you here. Well, thank you, Dory. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you so much. And every Wednesday during the month of February, we are part of this special series. It's sponsored by the government of Japan, and we're digging into the issues of the future. So, Wendy, the the first question that I have for you is actually about the massive supply chain disruptions that everyone has been facing and experiencing it's uh, is incredibly frustrating. I mean, we, we've all uh, in recent decades grown accustomed to a world where you order something. If you can't get it uh, tomorrow, you can certainly get it this week. Now, all of a sudden, basics, cars, furnitures, furniture, people are having to wait weeks and even months. What is it that's, that's going on and how do issues of trade uh, affect all of this? What's, what's happening and how can we make sense of it? Well, that's a great question. And a few years ago, if you asked people about supply chains, no one would really know what you were talking about. And now it's, it's like front page news. And what's happening is um, for a number of reasons, supply chains aren't working as smoothly as they used to. And there's a number of reasons for that. Number one is just the supply and demand situation. So during COVID, a lot of us are spending a lot of time at home. And we're spending a lot less time in restaurants and hotels and traveling. So as a result, we want to buy a lot more stuff. We want to buy more electronics. We're fixing our houses. Um, we're, we're setting up new rooms and redesigning old rooms. And all of that require, leads to a demand for goods. And those goods need to be shipped um, at a time when many of them come from overseas, if not the final good, many of the inputs. And you, so you have a supply demand mismatch. If, when that's coupled with COVID illness and factory lockdowns, that means a lot of the folks can't even get to their factories to make these goods. So that leads to a backup. And then on top of that, you have logistics problems because the same reasons ports have been closed or um, you know ports have been backed up. So when you put all of these elements together, we found ourselves in what we call kind of a supply chain crunch. And that's, you know, early on in the pandemic, it affected electronic products, it affected furniture, but then it moved to cars. Now you go to the supermarket and they're empty shelves, at least in Washington, D.C., with respect to certain products. And frankly, um, you know, the question I always get, when is this going to be over? I think this is going to be the new normal for a while. Um, I think we're going to have to get used, used to supply chain disruptions. Um, but I think eventually we'll, we'll find that sweet spot again. But I think there will be shifts in supply chains as well in response to all of these disruptions. 
That's interesting. Thank you, Wendy. We're here with Wendy Cutler. She's the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. She's also a former U.S. trade negotiator. So we're glad to have her perspective. And please feel free, if you are tuning in and joining us, to type into the chat box and let us know who you are and where you're from. And if you have any questions for Wendy Cutler, we are part of a special Newsweek series on creating the economy of the future. Now, Wendy, when it comes to these supply chain issues, I am curious, obviously, part of the issue here is we live in such a globalized economy. Um, people are getting parts for different things that they're trying to assemble from all around the world. And that magnifies some of the, the challenges if there's a hiccup in uh, one part of the supply chain. Overall, what's your perspective? Um, were, were there certain countries that were actually winners in this whole supply chain, Michigas, or, uh, or basically was everyone a loser in this situation? How did, how did it shake out uh, more broadly? Well, it's, it's too early to tell, frankly, because we don't have the data. But my sense is that countries like Vietnam um, and many of its neighbors in Southeast Asia have benefited from some of these supply chain shifts. Um, they've put into place programs to attract um, investments that, that are either leaving China or investments that companies are looking to make in order to reduce their vulnerabilities and dependence on one market, whether it be China or not. And so when the data is available, and again, right now it's just anecdotal, it does look like countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia probably have benefited. But at the same time, you know, they've had tough times as well. Um, because again, what, you know, COVID has led to many illnesses around um, um, the world. And right now, for example, the Delta variant is still rampant in Southeast Asia. And so, um, you know, disruptions will be continuing, but I don't think it's a lose-lose situation. I think there will be some, some um, bright spots. I also think that this is gonna lead to further shifts in supply chains going forward, because what it has revealed is the dependence, over-dependence on certain sources of supply. And as you mentioned, Dory, you could have you know, a car, 10,000 parts, 999 are work, you can get them, but you can't get that one part, that one bolt, that one um, widget. And all of a sudden you can't finalize um, that production. And so that has led companies to really look through not only those um, key parts, but also critical, well, also parts that they didn't view as so critical um, and they got spoiled and they thought that there'll never be any disruptions. So I think we're going to see shifting patterns continue, and that may benefit other countries in particular outside of China. And frankly, it, it may even um, benefit countries like Mexico um, as a number of countries, as the US and others look to kind of regionalize their supply chains and bring them either back to their borders or, or very close to their borders. That's a really interesting point. We're here with Wendy Cutler. She's with the Asia Society Policy Institute. You can learn more about them at asiasociety.org. So, Wendy, one of the, the calls that we hear regularly from, from certain politicians or, you know, just sort of a drumbeat over time is, you know, br bring the jobs back to the U.S. Do you actually think that it is plausible given the, the U.S. Um, 
experience of this supply chain crisis that we are going to go back to a world where some of these these you know little tiny manifold parts are going to be built in the U.S.? Or do you feel like the future is going to look a little bit more like you were describing, where maybe instead it's a question of diversification amongst, say, Asian countries or perhaps in Mexico? Is it realistic to think that there will be um, more you know, pieces of the supply chain manufactured in the U.S.? Well, despite the calls for what's called reshoring, bringing that production back to the United States or frankly, back to Japan or back to Korea, um, we're not gonna be able to bring everything back. But I do think with respect to certain critical um, products such as semiconductors or batteries, you're gonna see more production being brought back to the United States or more incentives given to foreign direct investment within our borders. I think this also pertains to what I would call essential materials. And here I put, you know, a lot of the healthcare products, right? We, we discovered during COVID that we were over-dependent on China for PPE. We were over-dependent on India for other pharmaceuticals. Um, and that's kind of revealed a number of these like vulnerabilities. And so I think you're going to see selective incentives to reshore but at the end of the day, a lot of these decisions are made by private companies. And the question is, you know, are they, is this going to be economical for them or is this going to be in their interest to bring the production home? And frankly, um, in a lot of these product areas, if we were to make everything within the U.S. borders, the prices for consumers would go up considerably at a time when we're already experiencing high inflation rates. So I don't think it's feasible, but I think you're going to see kind of what I would call selective reshoring of certain critical and essential products. That makes a lot of sense. And as a result of these disruptions that we've seen, have there been laws passed or do you anticipate laws being passed, um, whether it's in the United States or around the world, with regard to trade policies? Is, is there going to be a wave of perhaps even mandates about how to think about trade so that critical items don't uh, experience these shortages? Well, not mandates, I think more incentives. For example, in the United States, we're already rewriting our government procurement rules. So meaning we're giving incentives to companies that produce in the United States and have more US value in their products. We're uh, making them um, eligible for um, greater price preferentials. So that's one area. But I think it's about um, providing incentives um, you know, we have now a, a bill pending in the Congress um, to give $52 billion um, for our, to our semiconductor industry, largely to build new fabrication plants in the United States. And so these incentives, um, you know, will lead companies to decide that, huh, maybe we should come back, that when they, lock, when they look at the cost um, price, the, the cost benefit analysis, and they also look at risk mitigation and, and lessening their vulnerabilities, they will make that choice. I think Japan has certain programs um, as well. They put money towards encouraging certain of their companies to come back to Japan. Korea has done the same. Um, and we may see others kind of follow, follow that route as well. Yeah, thank you very much. We're here with Wendy Cutler. She is with the Asia Society Policy Institute. <laughs> 
Wendy, I'm uh, I'm curious. We've been talking uh, a bit about China, which of course is a, a huge player uh, in terms of global supply chain manufacturing. Can you talk a little bit about differences? Oh, and it sounds like we yard men. That's always yeah. exciting. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, life, life in the verbs. I, that's, that's how we roll. <laughs> but uh, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit. Uh, certainly, uh, Donald Trump during his presidency made China and uh, and toughness on China, uh, a, a key centerpiece of some of the things that he was talking about. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the Trump administration and the Biden administration with regard to how they are thinking about trade with China and similarities or differences that you have observed? Yeah, and, and there are similarities, but there are also important differences. I've read you know, a number of, of, of reports that suggesting Biden's just following the Trump trade policies. And I just don't agree with that. I don't think that's accurate. Um, I do think though, that there is um, kind of a unified view in the United States and a bipartisan view that um, you know, we need to really rethink our relationship with China. Um, we need to be realistic when we look at where they're headed um, and as a result, we need to rebuild our competitiveness at home. We need to work with our allies and partners to re collectively respond to some of the challenges that China brings to the global economy. And we're needed. We need to take actions against China. And so that's, that's kind of the policy of the Biden administration. And the administration is putting such an important emphasis on working with allies and partners and this differs from the Trump go it alone approach. I think what Trump was thinking that, you know, we, we can um, force China to change by making, it, making their current practices too expensive by putting in tariffs. And that policy didn't work because did China cave? No, what China did is it responded with its own tariffs. And so now we're left with tariffs on over $300 billion worth of imports into the United States. But what's interesting for me, trade between the US and China continues. And in fact, Chinese exports to the United States this past year were at record levels. Um, again, a lot of that having to do um, to US demand shifts during COVID, but I also think it underscores our economies are interconnected. Um, so um, that was one important difference. I also think the Biden administration is viewing our trade relationship with China as one part of our overall relationship with China. For Trump, the trade relationship was really the driving feature of our overall relationship. And um, I think now a more strategic view towards China, which includes a trade component, but is not driven by trade considerations is in place now. That's really interesting. Thank you. We're here with Wendy Cutler. She's a former U.S. trade negotiator, now vice president at the Asia Society Policy Institute. We're talking about creating the economy of the future. We want to welcome some of the great friends who are tuning in, including uh, we have Sushma, who's here from India, joining us, and many more. Uh, we're very glad to have you, and feel free to type in uh, any questions you have for Wendy as we talk about uh, economic policy, free trade, and more. 
Now, Wendy, one thing I'm curious about, we've been talking about uh, a variety of different countries. I'd love to zero in on one of our other large trading partners, which is Japan. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the, the biggest issues facing uh, U.S. and Japanese trade relations uh, in the current climate? Well, you know, it's interesting. I spent many years of my career at the U.S. government negotiating trade agreements with Japan, um, primarily doing, during the trade war days, but also during um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. And, you know, I remember when relations were, trade relations were so tense between the United States and Japan. Um, and um, by the time I left the government in 2015, um, our trade relations could not have been closer. When Japan joined the TPP negotiations, they really became such a close partner of the United States in terms of helping to push a high standards agreement. Um, regrettably, we left the agreement, but Japan not only stayed in the agreement, but it marshaled all the other countries to conclude the agreement without us. And frankly, kept most of the agreement intact. Very few provisions were suspended and all the market access commitments remained. So I have enormous respect for what, um, you know, the role Japan played. And fact, in fact, now, when you look at our trade relationship with Japan, look, there's some, you know, there's some sectoral problems, whether it be in financial services or pharmaceuticals, but that will always be the case with any two large trading partners. You're always gonna have friction somewhere, but that doesn't define our trade relationship at all. In fact, um, I think we see eye to eye on many trade and trade related issues, whether it be issues related to um, um, supply chains or working, you know, working to address China challenges, um, working and pushing for WTO reform, we really see eye to eye with Japan and we're very close partners in the economic um, area as well as our overall strong, um, you know, alliance. Absolutely. So let's talk for a minute about some of the smaller and less developed economies, Wendy. Obviously, the, the pandemic and uh, the pandemic itself and also the supply chain disruptions uh, effectuated by the pandemic have impacted a lot of developing economies um, in oftentimes negative ways. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the scenario is on the ground in, um, in, in some of these countries and also perhaps what larger economies might do to, uh, to help in some way or to, to rectify some of these imbalances? Look, it's really a mixed picture. Before we had vaccines, there was a lot of, um, you know, everyone was, was trying to deal with lockdowns and economic um, downturns. Um, both developed and developing countries. Um, once the Western world got vaccines, we kept those largely to ourselves. We weren't generous enough, but over time now, the United States and other countries have been shipping vaccines to developing countries. I mean, we all know in our, in our, in our minds, we all know that this, this pandemic will not be over until the whole world is vaccinated. But at the same time, look, national governments are under in intense pressure to take care of their own citizens first and not be that global citizen first. So many developing countries, you know, were slow to get the vaccines, blamed the United States and other countries for not being generous enough. 
But I think now that that kind of concern is really beginning to subside um, and at least um, vaccines are being made available, um, distribution channels and production manufacturing facilities are being improved um, and you know, vaccines are becoming more available. The other, you know, the, the economic um, impacts of COVID, of lockdowns, um, of the shutting of factories and all of that, that also disproportionately hit uh, many developing countries. Um, and I think many of them are still trying to, um, you know, to recover. And when you look at growth rates globally last year, um, um, you know, they were, they were pretty low. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that beginning to turn around. Um, and they largely are depending on stimulus and other kind of government programs in the developed world to kind of help them lift them out of their economic doldrums. So, um, you know, look, the, the pandemic has resulted in a lot of disproportional hurt, um, but hopefully we're kind of over, you know, we're, we're getting back in a better place. Um, but I think it's raised a lot of questions about, um, you know, the lessons learned from this pandemic. Um, one of the, the trade lessons learned is that um, countries, including the United States and Europe in particular, were very quick to put in export restrictions on medical equipment, on medical supplies, and ultimately vaccines. And um, the WTO doesn't prohibit export restrictions, but it does set up a bunch of rules to try and discourage them. But those rules weren't followed. Um, and I think looking ahead, that's an area that I think is gonna require you know, the global trading community to give further thought to, um, because withholding those types of supplies um, and, um, and related products um, and medicines is, is, is not um, the way the global community should respond to a pandemic. Indeed. Yes. Thank you. We're here with Wendy Cutler. She's vice president at the Asia Society Policy Institute, a former U.S. trade negotiator. And we're here discussing how to create the economy of the future. What does it look like? What should it look like? And Wendy, one of the biggest trends that we've been seeing in recent years around the world, really, is a rise of nationalistic movements. And many of them are opposed to free trade. They're opposing globalization. I'm curious, what are your thoughts about what is giving rise to this phenomenon? And is it actually a, a, a problem? Should we be concerned? Or if there were some countries that said, you know, no, no more, we're, we're, we're going to step out of this global economy thing. We don't want free trade. Um, what, uh, what would happen? Is this actually a, a big deal that everyone should be concerned about or not so much? Well, the United States has had a big rethink about trade. And for the years I was working on trade um, at the office of the US trade representative, whether I worked for Republicans or Democrats, it was largely the same policy that was being pursued. And that was that trade liberalization and open, opening markets was in the US interest. It would help grow our economy and it would help our trading partners grow their economy and develop their economies. And therefore it was a win-win situation. But over the years, that, um, you know, that, that philosophy is not, you know, it, it's not as strong as it used to be. And many concerns were increasingly raised during my last 10 years at USDR in particular 
that these trade agreements just weren't benefiting the U.S. middle class, that the U.S. middle class was kind of falling behind. Um, these trade agreements um, helped to, to grow trade, but they, they exacerbated income inequality in the United States. Um, and that um, burden fell at the shoulders largely of the U.S. middle class. Um, over um, leading up to the Biden administration, I participated in a study with, with um, some current Biden uh, administration officials called a foreign policy for the U.S. middle class, U.S. foreign policy for the middle class. And we looked at a lot of these issues, not just trade, but just in general, where does the U.S. middle class, what does it think about our foreign policy, our trade policy? Um, and um, I think there, you know, it, it revealed many valid concerns, um, but it also suggested that um, our middle class is very supportive of international engagement. They don't want to withdraw from the world, but they want to make sure that trade is fair, that there's a level playing field, and that all countries, particularly China, you know, play by the rules. And um, the Biden administration has kind of, um, let's just say, uh, has been reluctant to pursue new trade agreements with the view that we need to really take care of pressing domestic concerns first. We need to rebuild our competitiveness. And when we do start pursuing trade initiatives, we need to ensure that they look different and that in particular, they promote labor and worker standards, that they promote equity in the societies globally, um, and that they promote um, the strengthening of, of environmental protections. Um, and so our trade policy is changing. Um, my view is that, you know, there are valid concerns that need to be addressed, but my concern is that we may be moving too far to one side of the pendulum and that not all trade liberalization is bad and not all trade liberalization works against US interests. We need to find that balance. And in my view, we're not there yet. Yeah, thank you for that. This is Dory Clark on behalf of Newsweek. We are here talking about creating the economy of the future every Wednesday during the month of February. We are here at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific, talking about various aspects of what the world economy will look like and should look like in the future. Our guest is Wendy Cutler of the Asia Society Policy Institute. You can learn more at asiasociety.org. Now, Wendy, a moment ago you were talking about uh, a fair playing field. One of the topics that you've written about in the past is called trade coercion, which obviously does not sound good. Can you talk to us a little bit about what trade coercion is and why it's a problem and also what, what can we do about it? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. When I look to the future, this is one of those practices, trade coercive practices that concerns me and really has the potential, if left unchecked, to weaken the global trading system. And in short, what this refers to are practices by certain countries um, that um, lead them to restrict imports or take other economic restrictive policies in response to foreign policy concerns. So for example, um, Australia, which was very vocal a few years ago calling for uh, WTO investigation of the origins of COVID 
Um, let's just say this call was not met with enthusiasm in China. And as a result of, of, of this policy move by um, Australia, as well as some other steps they took, um, China chose to restrict access to their market for Australian exports of a variety of products, including wine, barley, coal, meat, and the list goes on and on. And these restrictions remain in place. And it's very difficult to um, respond to these restrictions um, when many of them um, at least, um, you know, are kind of what I call in the gray area where China has some plausible deniability. And when the WTO dispute settlement system is just not working the way it should. Um, we're now seeing that this practice is now spread to Lithuanian imports and even beyond that to any EU um, um, exports that incorporate Lithuanian parts. And so now the European Union is taking a WTO dispute settlement case against China, um, calling these practices um, illegal under the WTO framework. But while I think the WTO is a useful area to, to try and pursue these grievances, um, I think it's important that um, countries kind of band together and collectively tell China or frankly other, any other country that tries this practice um, that this is unacceptable, it's unfair, and to actually come up with some um, punishment um, towards that country on a collective basis. We're not there yet. Um, countries are comfortable being vocally, um, you know, vocally showing solidarity with a country that's being hit. But in terms of taking really concrete actions, like not letting Chinese imports in um, as a result, or somehow letting those products from the country that's being hit into, you know, into their countries, it just gets more complicated. But um, I think this is a practice that, um, again, if, if the global community doesn't collectively respond to, then China and other countries will get the message, guess what, this is okay. And we're going to continue um, you know, using trade restrictive practices um, in order to get what we want on the foreign policy front. Yeah, that is, that is a real challenge. Another challenge, Wendy, that I think might be on a lot of people's minds is obviously there, there are many benefits to free trade uh, across the, the globe. One thing that is clearly not a benefit if goods are traveling over long distances is the impact on the climate. Can you talk a little bit more about free trade and how this factors in with the climate change goals that many countries are setting, trying to meet? How can free trade coexist with some of the new imperatives that countries are trying to live by? And that's such a topical issue for, for our topic today, creating the economy of the future, because frankly, all of these environmental and climate considerations are going to need to be factored into trade policies. We don't have the answers yet. Um, Europe, for example, has come forward with what's called in the trade world a, a proposal for a CBAM, a carbon border adjustment um, measure, which would basically allow it to um, impose tariffs on imports that are carbon intensive. Um, if Europe does this unilaterally and puts this policy in place, 
um, you could see how it could be abused and could be viewed by others as a protectionist policy. And so it's so important that the global trading community comes together and tries to set these rules together. But as we've seen in any climate change talks, there's a huge gap between what um, developed countries are ready to do and what developing countries don't want to do until the developed countries do more. And so this is a huge challenge, but it's something we're going to have to address. Um, I think over time, what we will see is more regionalization of trade um, because the long distances are going to result, you know, they just use, you know, more energy is needed to move, to ship the products. And so that could make your neighbors, um, you know, more attractive um, sources of supply. Also, I think there will be a real push in certain industries, particularly like steel, aluminum, and others to reduce their carbon intensity and use new manufacturing methods that don't um, you know, burn so many fossil fuels. But when I look to the future and look where the rules, you know, the important rules that need to be developed, the whole environment climate space is just ripe for international discussion. But again, this will not be easy and particularly given the divide between the developed and the developing world. Yes, absolutely. It is a, a big challenge. We're here with Wendy Cutler. She's a vice president at the Asia Society Policy Institute. You can learn more about their work at asiasociety.org. And we are here as part of a special series for the month of February, sponsored by Newsweek and uh, presented by the government of Japan, talking about creating the economy of the future. It's every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern, 930 Pacific. Now, Wendy, one of the biggest factors that has really reshaped the landscape of commerce, um, many aspects of free trade, is the shift in recent years to having so much of the consumer purchasing experience be done through e-commerce rather than going to stores, rather than people, you know, buying the thing locally, uh, they're, they're getting it with a click and it may be shipped from around the world. Uh, but e-commerce is a huge factor in, uh, in how they are actually transacting that business. Can you talk a little bit about the rise of e-commerce and how it may be affecting, uh, global trade and also supply chain issues? Well, you're right, Dory. Like we're just seeing, um, you know, just a, a huge shift away from, you know, the bricks and mortar um, stores to, to e-commerce. And that's not just in, you know, domestically, it's internationally. So it's really kind of reshaping the way trade is conducted. Um, in, in, um, in trade agreements, more and more, you'll see what are called e-commerce chapters or digital trade chapters, or even just standalone digital trade or digital economy agreements that are trying to set the rules for e-commerce trade um, to make sure that um, data can flow freely um, between countries to ensure that countries don't require that data be stored in, you know, in the country. Um, to ensure that um, e-commerce can move quickly um, and without barriers, um, including tariff barriers between countries, um, and the list goes on and on. And as more and more trade is conducted digitally, um, this is, you know, when we look to the economy of the future, this is another area in addition to climate 
where new rules are needed. Um, the WTO is um, conducting e-commerce negotiations. It's hard to imagine that there are no rules in the WTO, the Global Trading Organization for e-commerce trade as of today. Um, you know, e-commerce has been around for a long time. And so what countries have chosen to do is to just work with other like-minded countries to set up the rules between them um, with respect to digital trade. And this is, again, is going to be an increasingly important area of any trade agreement and any trade arrangements going forward. The United States is about to unveil a new Indo-Pacific economic framework, which will define our scope for economic engagement in the important Indo-Pacific region. And one of the most important features of this framework will be rules and suggested cooperation on digital economy matters. Um, and so this is issues kind of front and center um, globally. And um, I think there's a real sense that um, we need rules. Now, the challenge here is the kind of rules that the United States and, and its partners and allies would like to set up with respect to e-commerce, um, you know, fly in the face of the type of regime that China is seeking, where it's seeking um, to impose many restrictions on the use and the storage of data um, and on the ability of its e-commerce and other digital companies to operate freely. Um, and so um, while there are some commonalities with respect to wanting to facilitate e-commerce trade, there are many challenges here, here as well. Yeah, that's a, a very useful observation. Thank you, Wendy. Wendy Cutler, former U.S. Trade Representative, now with the Asia Society Policy Institute. Wendy, one of the other areas of specialization that you focus on is women's empowerment in Asia. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that and how that factors in to the economic issues that you study. Yeah. So my interest in, in this topic really um, was rooted in a lot of trade negotiations I was involved in with Asian counterparts, particularly Japan and Korea, um, you know, in, in the 90s and 2000s, where I would be like the only woman in the room. And I'd look across the table and particularly my, my Asian counterparts, I saw a lot of guys and not a lot of women. But that's changing. And so one of the things that I really feel passionately about is to try and help these women um, gain the skills necessary, not only with respect to how to, how, how to understand trade and how to pursue trade policy, but also how to advance in the workplace as a woman in very male-dominated societies. And I'm doing some great programs with young women across the board in Asia, and I'm learning so much. And I I think that um, you know, in 10 years, you're, you may even see more women in the room than men, and that's very encouraging. Um, you know, also when I think of the the impact of COVID on women um, and, and you know women's employment, a lot of people are focusing on the negatives, right? That women during COVID, many had to leave the workforce because they needed to take care of their kids' education at home. They had elderly parent care. They couldn't keep up with, um, you know, with all the demands and, and subsequently left the workforce. In addition, many women who worked in the services sector, as we discussed earlier, found that um, either they were expected to go into work, you know, even when COVID was rampant and they didn't want to do that, um, or that, um, you know, their jobs were eliminated. 
And so there are negative aspects of COVID. But I'm hoping that one kind of bright light going forward for women's employment um, will be the kind of the, the, the acceptance now of telecommuting and being able to do your work electronically because that provides so much more flexibility, which is so key to, um, you know, to particular, for, for women who where a lot of the housekeeping, child rearing and elderly care burdens fall on them. So it will be interesting to see. I know in Japan, um, you know, they're moving forward in this area and some companies have been pretty supportive of, um, you know, working at home, working virtually. Um, it will be interesting to see if, if this acceptance and this flexibility continues when, when we kind of either get over COVID or you know, at least are, are in, a, in a better place with respect to COVID. But I'm hoping it will because um, you know, it's, it's, it's just critical. We all need flexibility at work. Um, we're seeing that in the United States across the board. Um, and um, you know, again, women were hit hard by COVID in the workplace, but maybe going forward in the longer term, there will be these kind of benefits that will help them remain in the workforce. And frankly, for a country like Japan, they need these women to stay in the workforce. And it's not enough to just you know, get women at entry level to come into these jobs. I mean, you know, one of the key challenges for, um, for, for Japan is retaining women in the workplace once they start having families. And, you know, I think Japanese officials need to, to deal with that. I don't think it's just a problem for the government. I think that corporations and private sector firms have a lot to contribute here as well, as well as a lot of the cultural norms, you know, just need to change. Um, but with the demographic challenges that countries like Japan and Korea, and now even China are facing, um, you know, the women's role in the workplace is going to become more and more important. And if the environment is not improved and the flexibility isn't increased, um, I think they're going to have a huge challenge retaining women, um, you know, women in, in the workforce. Yes, women's participation in the labor market is certainly a crucial issue. So thank you for touching on that, Wendy. And I'm curious, as, as a last question for you, and again, we've been here with Wendy Cutler. She is with the Asia Society Policy Institute. She's a former U.S. trade representative. If we were empowering you, Wendy, with a magic wand and you were able to single-handedly address what you think is the biggest issue in trade right now, what would it be? What problem would you solve? How, how would you fix things to improve uh, the world? I think the biggest challenge right now, and the, the one that worries me the most about the future of the trading system is, um, is, is the behavior of non-market economies, particularly China. I think they have a completely different system um, and um, with a lot of state, um, um, state support um, and a lot of government direction. And that kind of clashes with, um, you know, the, the, the free, the, you know, the free trade or the, the multilateral trading system. And unfortunately, the rules were locked in um, before um, these practices became prevalent and so it's so hard to change these rules because China's happy with the status quo. They're getting the benefits and yet they're not, you know, they're not having to, um, you know, let's just say a lot of their, their um, trade distorting practices aren't being disciplined. And so how we get around that is, is just, 
it's very challenging. And I think that is going to lead to, we're all already seeing it in the United States, but I think we'll spread to other countries as well, is how can you support this global trading system when some countries are playing by the rules and the others, yeah, they may be playing by most of the rules, but the rules don't even address, you know, their their problems or, or their challenges they're bringing to the trading system. So, um, you know, that's the one that kind of keeps me up at night because I don't know, you know, what the solution is here. And I think that impacts the ability of us to work with China to set up rules to govern supply chains, export restrictions, environmental, um, you know, considerations, um, and you know some of the other issues of the future, like digital trade, um, that we've been discussing. Really important observation. Thank you so much. But that's a pretty down note to conclude on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's let's conclude on an up one. Wendy, what are you most encouraged by in the in the world of trade right now? Is is there is there a bright light? Is there something you feel well, like is a positive development? You know, the positive development for me is that even with all these problems, countries continue to trade a lot. <laughs> and even during COVID, you know, when you look at the trade flows between countries and not just the US and China, but just across the board, Trade is, you know, the trade volumes are increasing. Companies are finding ways to trade, even if they think their governments aren't doing such a great job. So there must be something right about it. It's going to be with us forever. Not everyone's just closing their borders. So, um, you know, that's, I think, a bright spot. <laughs> trade absolutely continues. That's wonderful. Wendy Cutler, she's with the Asia Society Policy Institute. You can learn more at asiasociety.org. We've been talking about creating the economy of the future. It's a special series put on by Newsweek. It is every Wednesday during the month of February at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 Pacific. Tune in next Wednesday. We're going to be talking about the future of the economy and climate change. Wendy Cutler, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Dory. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.